broadcasting from the history logs of the USS Franklin. This is Politrex. The Time Directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ, Calus the Unforgettable. Welcome everyone to Politrex. We're a proud member of the Trek Geeks Network, and here on Politrex, we look at the socio-political happenings of today and in history through the episodes, movies, and philosophies of Trek. We have all of Crawl's plans to destroy the Enterprise. But outside of that, my name is Barry DeFort, and with my fantastic co-host, who is often imitated and never replicated, he is the illustrious Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing, Mr. Avaru? Namaste, Homo sapiens. I am great. Like another Star Trek Beyond character, I am hiding a MacGuffin that's very important to the story in the scalp of my head, right right up there. Just all covered with my crab tentacles. You know, completely out of context, hiding a MacGuffin in your crab tentacles sounds um, a little bit uh, like a... Like like something someone would never want to find. What are you talking about? I have no idea. I don't know. Well, <laughs> you you and I have been gallivanting quite a bit with uh, a lot of extra outside of podcast work. Mr. Rivaru, how have you been since the move? I have been great. I am now in a two-bedroom apartment, which in American capitalist terms means I'm moving up in the world. So... Uh, while I'm enjoying that, what I'm really, really happy about is that there is enough distance between me and Zord in our apartment now, so there won't be as many bows and <laughs> and licking the microphone and wanting to be a part of this show when he's definitely not as welcome as he thinks he is. So I didn't know Dan Davidson was going to be on the show, but... Uh... <laughs> I guess, you know, hey, you know, it's, my wonder is, is, is that other bedroom uh, where you're keeping Zod, uh, does it have a floating mirror? No. Why but, would it have a floating mirror? Well, isn't that where you keep Zod in the floating mirror that floats uh, around his face? The Phantom Zone. Yeah. Well yeah, played. Well yeah. played. Very, very, very nice pun. I should have, I should have caught that one. No, yeah. I really, in long term, I'm hoping that my parents will come visit me next year. So that is awesome. When they come there will be a bedroom for them. As much as I enjoy sleeping in the same room as my parents. I, I would say that, you know, if um, if your parents came, even if you had a one bedroom, they would have a bedroom to sleep in and you would have a couch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're ensuring you get a bedroom. You get the bedroom now. <laughs> so yeah, I get the point. small bedroom. Yeah. I'm sure they'll have Zord because he likes cuddling and sleeping and he's a dog. They'll mm. just probably kick me out very nicely. Yeah, fair enough. Which I don't mind, man. They're my parents. Yeah. So if you are interested in getting a hold of us, you can always find us at Polytrex on Twitter. We don't have much of a Facebook presence, but uh, you can definitely engage with me, yours truly, Barry DeFord, on Camp Kittimer on Facebook and on Bjorn DeFjord on Twitter. Where can we find you, Shashank? People can find me on at gutter underscore hero on Twitter. That's G-U-T-T-E-R underscore H-E-R-O. You can also email me if you're brave enough. That's You can do that at polytrexpodcast at gmail.com. Com. We both regularly absolutely check that email, and whenever <laughs> we get one, we will definitely give you a shout for taking the time to write an email. Unfortunately, I don't do Facebook because I think Mark Zuckerberg is Satan's next weapon, but good for you for using it. Hey, you know, it's all good. Also, uh, Trekkers. <laughs> We really do appreciate your patience with us as we've been sort of coming out with uh, 
ish one episode a month and we want to make it up to you with a new idea that Shashank actually came up with just recently. Shashank, how about you tell us a little bit about uh, what your ideas are to engage our audience a bit more? Sure. When Barry says just recently, what he really means is I came up with it 20 minutes ago as we were starting up our things at each other's end for the podcast. I was telling him for today's episode, I am watching Star Trek Beyond in the background as we record this just to be surrounded by the movie and enjoy that because it's an awesome movie. And I, I just said out of the blue, hey, it would be cool if we do a commentary of the movie. And one thing led to another. And we are presenting to you for the first time polytrekkel commentaries. It's a nugget of an idea right now. But we do think it'll be fun. We could do special episode recordings. We definitely have some episodes that we want to do commentaries on. So the idea is we will start the episode we will definitely direct you on when we are going to start the episode and that way you can tune it up with us, get your TV on or whatever you watch your Star Trek on. We'll probably do polls on what episodes you want us to do commentaries on. It's, it'll just be us very casually talking to you. It'll almost be as if we are in the room with you watching it and you get a snarky political slash cultural smart ass commentary. How does that sound? I think it sounds fantastic. And yeah, just as a sort of a thank you for everyone who listens to us to help engage just a little bit more. And um, if you are feeling already quite engaged with uh, with Politrex, you can always support the Trek Geeks Network on Patreon. They have a wonderful amount of rewards. There's always some entertaining and fun things happening. And Shashank and I do also have some delights cooking up for y'all on the uh, Trek Geeks Patreon account as well. So by supporting the network, you support all of us. And we have some amazing shows that are coming out, ones that um, I can't barely even keep up with. There's so much fantastic things happening right now on, uh, on this lovely network we find ourselves on. So I think with that, let's say we get on to a very special Canadian edition of the news. Let's do it, eh? Welcome everyone to the news. Today's a very special news segment because I, uh, your lovely Canadian co-host, is just a few days away from the Canadian federal election. It'll be happening on Monday, October 21st, and right now it is a battle between the two major parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, in terms of economic spectrum. Obviously, the Conservatives, I would say, are kind of more Republican-esque, maybe republican light, like a sort of a Marco Rubio or a Mitt Romney. And then our quote-unquote Democrats, I think, are a little further to the right than our liberals. So I don't really know if necessarily someone like AOC or Bernie would fit or Ellen Omar would fit necessarily in the Liberal Party. I think they would have a place, but I think that um, they are probably the furthest to the left Democrats, whereas I think that the Liberal Party of Canada can go much further to the left. There are other parties, however, that run in the Canadian election, and um, some of them do win seats and can actually even form coalitions and be the balance of power in a minority government. And I can explain all that. It's the Westminster system if you want to Wikipedia it. But ultimately what it what it is, is um, there's a couple of other parties. There's the New Democratic Party, which is social Democrats, so they are furthest to the left in the capitalist spectrum, you would say. Um, and then on the other side, for viable parties who will likely win seats, um, there's also 
the uh, Green Party, which is fiscally conservative, but very socially progressive, and of course, very environmentally minded. And then there's the People's Party of Canada, which is a right wing, extremely right wing, hyper conservative, um, petro nationalist, anti immigration, anti multiculturalism. Um, yeah, just. Uh, Overall, not the type of people I want running my country, but they exist as well. Okay, so I think you answered part of my first question, but for the benefit of our listeners and me, because there are a lot of things about this election that I also need to know about, I had a few questions for you that I wanted our collective community to know about and also you to just give us your opinion on. Now, obviously, since we are recording this on the eve of the election, presumably if things go like most elections, we will know what the result is by the time this episode drops. So we'll save your predictions for what is going to happen for the end. But for now, expand a little bit more on what you mean the way your elections held. So for people familiar with the electoral college system, tell us how exactly a winner is decided. Sure thing. So the entire country is divided up into ridings. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but there are over 100. And each riding represents a seat in the Canadian parliament. And so basically what happens is, is candidates are selected from each of the major parties. Um, and actually even further down, there are other parties in Canada as well. Um, there's a Christian Heritage Party. Um, there's a Communist Party of Canada. There's a number of other parties that do exist and could potentially win seats. But anyways, um, each party runs candidates in ridings. Sometimes they don't run candidates in every single riding. For instance, there is a national party called the Bloc Québécois, which is completely a Quebec national party. um, And their original push was to basically garner enough support to separate Quebec from Canada to completely dislocate themselves from the Canadian uh, Confederacy. And they almost managed it in 1995, actually, uh, in the second referendum. It it was a 49 to 51 stay vote, which uh, was pretty close. So each candidate in the party is are the people who com- who campaign in their specific ridings, and then that is who we vote for. So in my riding, we have a conservative, a PPC, a liberal, a green, and a new Democrat. And I would vote for the one who best represents my interests, my, you know, or, you know, you can vote for the person too. Now, what happens is, is throughout the entire country, the party that wins the most riding seats will be given the chance to form the government. Now, it is a first-to-pass-the-post system, so after you cross a certain certain number threshold, you move into what's called majority territory. And it means that all of your seats outnumber, means that all of your seats would add up to having more seats than any of the other parties even combined in this case. Now, there is the possibility that there could be a you know, um, one of the parties that will have enough seats to form a government, but unfortunately they don't have enough seats to say pass a vote in parliament. So what would happen is, is if they were to form a government and they, they were outnumbered by their opposing parties, they would then, you know, if they wanted to make Tuesday taco day or something and the other parties all voted against them, which would then outnumber them, um, that would actually force a no confidence vote. Uh, in the government. And if all of the other outnumbering parties all vote that government's no confidence in an overwhelming vote, we would then go back to a uh, federal election. So typically what happens is if a party ends up with enough seats to form a government, but not enough seats to, you know, win these votes in parliament over, you know, different policy ideas and stuff, they'll usually form coalitions with other parties. Um, Or, 
it'll be a what's called a minority government where there'll be a smaller party that has enough seats that if they voted with the ruling party's stuff, that would all pass and be good and we could keep the government rolling. Or if not, they voted against them, they could end up dislodging that that party from government. So we call that holding the balance of power. So typically, it's it's always been either the conservatives or the liberals who have won the election. And in the past, parties like the Bloc Québécois and parties like the New Democrats have been the ones who have held what we call the balance of power in these minority governments. But obviously, minority governments are typically unstable. And sometimes they move to coalition governments. And I think the best example of a coalition government in recent history was the Liberal Democrat and Conservative government of um, David Cameron in 2009 England. That would probably be the the best example. So that was pretty long-winded, but I hope that explains it. It does. It's actually very familiar to the current English election and the Indian election. We called it the parliamentary election, and instead of ridings, we had what are called constituencies. Yeah, same same idea. Yeah, and it's the same. It's just who gets to the number of seats first. I guess the biggest difference is we are not all voting for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. We are voting for individual people in these ridings who eventually form a party that will then select a leader who Mm -hmm. becomes the prime minister. Yeah, and typically, you know, they always say vote for the candidate, not for the party. But I do find that most candidates just toe the party line. So a vote for a candidate in your riding is ultimately a vote for the person you want to be your prime minister as well. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit of a double think kind of issue there. And the the, the NDP, the Green and the um, and the Liberal candidate have all been parachuted in in my my riding, like they aren't from here, there's no information about them, mainly because my riding is just so so solidly conservative. It's going to go conservative no matter what. Um, so I'm actually quite alienated where I am. Um, as a progressive voter as someone who calls you know considers themselves on the left i just don't there's no one to vote for because you know the ndp the liberal or the green candidate they have none of them are viable basically going to be a walkover by the uh, the conservative candidate so i don't know what to do i mean some people spoil their votes that ballot some people just vote their conscience anyway or they vote strategically right that's the other problem with this system is vote against the person you least want in rather than voting for the person you most want in and strategic voting is probably the worst thing about first past the post parliamentary system. So here's my next question. What's at stake in this election? If the tell me what the before you answer that, tell me what the general feel of the public is. Like are, is everybody feeling that the liberals will win again or will the conservatives win? Um that's the big question. So the big fight obviously is between the two leaders of the liberal and the conservative party. Liberal leader is Justin Trudeau, who is the son of famed Canadian prime minister of the 70s and early 80s Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau was very larger than life, um, almost kind of like a uh, like a pop culture figure in Canadian politics. He was known for being very loud, very boisterous, gregarious, um, and a, kind of a give him hell attitude. Um, I won't go too deep into his history because that could be a whole episode. The Justin of- Trudeau is also kind of a pop figure, right? Like he's known for... Yes, his looks and wearing Star Star Wars geeky stuff to places. That's Andrew Shear. So Trudeau is known for being pretty. You're absolutely right. He went to India. He does all those sorts of things. He likes to dress up. 
Um, oh no, you are right. Never mind. I know what you're yeah. talking about. Star yeah. Wars. Yes. Yeah, he wears the now. socks everywhere he goes. Yes. No, I do recall that. Let now. me tell you about your country, but <laughs> no, I forgot about that. I was just. Uh, I have on on my my list of things to mention. The conservative leader. I will give him one thing. Does in fact have an engineering division uniform, TNG era, and a PADD that he wears on Halloween and like walks around and speaking to conservative um the conservative candidate in my riding that candidate has mentioned on several occasions that andrew Shear, the leader of the conservative party um spends a lot of time talking about star trek and the simpsons so in terms of um pop cultural sorts of things i think that the conservative leader and you and i would all have quite a lot to talk about if we wanted to talk about star trek um however the conservatives are very much pushing for um a you know a review on uh, our carbon taxing you know so making sure that we're staying within the UN uh, parameters the conservatives want to back off from that um, they want to really really push industry so the big thing with this election is pipelines especially is um, the viability or lack thereof of pipelines there is quite a bit of petro-nationalism that's starting to form especially out here in the west so these are big issues um, the other really big issue is the SNC-Lavalin case I I can't get too deep into that as well because that would be like a 45-minute news segment. But needless to say, some corrupty sort of stuff went on um, with people who have ties to the Liberal Party. Justin Trudeau's um, Minister of Justice tried to call people on it and to save his skin justin trudeau um had her fired um and shuffled her out of cabinet and now andrew Shear is jumping on that quite a bit but however the conservatives have also hired like twitter troll bots to like troll people uh, in in other political parties and stuff so it's a big fight it's a big mess just really quick the ndp's big platform is fighting for you they really want to push more social programs they want a universal pharmacare um they want to increase and and strengthen our healthcare system that we have and, and love so dear look at national transit um, and the greens they're interested in like canceling student debt pushing a fiscally conservative but environmentally conscious policy and as i was saying the uh, people's party of canada the ppc want to um, limit incredibly the amount of immigration we have they want to give provinces carte blanche on um, what they do with you know education funding and healthcare funding and they want to push parliamentary rules to push for pipelines even if say a province says they don't want that or if a first nations group doesn't want a pipeline going through they would push it uh, anyways so it's a it's a heated time and there's a lot of division um, between a lot of people and a lot of it's been cooked up by um by a lot of, you know, pro and anti-oil rhetoric. Um, a lot of people kind of pushing for either the American or the European Union model of governance. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty it's a pretty tight race this time around. Okay, so this leads me to my final question for this news edition. Who do you think will win? I don't know. I really actually don't. The polls are very, very close. Justin Trudeau has made a dog's breakfast of his first term. I think in a lot of cases, he was actually pushing for proportional representation to change the the way we vote. So instead of first past the post, it would be a percentage of seats for the percentage of votes, which then eliminates the need for strategic voting um, or like a runoff system where you like put your first four choices or something like that. Um, and he backed off of that. Now, he did legalize uh, cannabis, which I think was a good idea because it has decriminalized, Not it's done more than just decriminalize um, something that really shouldn't be a problem. Um, but also the, the rollout was extremely disorganized and still isn't to where it should be. 
so there's that. I think Andrew Shear is going to, as I was saying kind of earlier with the term of the term carte blanche, um, the premiers of Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta specifically are waiting for him to take power. And if he does, they are going to push some severe austerity sort of stuff, I'm sure, which is going to ruin a lot of people's lives. So I don't know, party that has basically shown itself to be basically criminal or a party that will run roughshod over the interests of people, environmental groups, and indigenous communities for an, a dying industry, right? Like, I mean, the oil industry is on its way out, and I don't know. It's it's almost becoming like uh, this whole petro-nationalist, you know, Canadian oil is the best oil. It kind of kind of reminds me of like a cargo cult from the Second World War when people were given a lot of good stuff by the Americans during the Second World War and then left and didn't quite understand why they weren't being supported anymore. So they started like making these like pretend airstrips and pretend walkie-talkies and stuff to try to encourage the Americans to come back. It really does sort of remind me of earnest human willingness to keep with something that really isn't going to help them in the end. We, we can adapt to anything, and unfortunately, sometimes we also cling to uh, things as well. So nothing against the cargo cults that existed in, in, you know, Southeast Asia specifically. It's just a neat sociological comparison that shows that humans are humans no matter where they are and no matter at what technological level they're at. Speaking of humans at their technological level, let's talk about a franchise that we belong to very proudly in which people are at their technological level speak or so they think and then things happen we are, of course, talking about Star Trek Beyond today. We're our third or fourth, I don't remember how many of these uh, Polytrex off things we did. We did a bunch of them. You should go back and listen to all our episodes. What are we? I think this is our 27th episode. Well, it's more like, than that. I think, I think we're oh. cracking 30 now. Okay, great. They, that all sh- that shows everybody how much in touch I am with the catalog of our episodes, but we'll keep crunching them out as long as you keep listening to them. Since we had all this election talk, I did want to tell our people, if you haven't read Star Trek Year 5, you definitely should. It's a new comic book series that's ongoing. Uh, check out my reviews on treknews.net, hashtag humblebrag. But there is a really good uh, arc in which our holy trinity spock mccoy and kirk land on a planet that have taken on these three guys as cult of personality figures and then they find all these remnants of the old books of the federation and they build up their own version of democracy it's really fascinating you should check it out it's it's awesome anyway i actually have um those comics here at my house i just haven't read them yet so that's good totally worth it uh definitely worth it some of the best star trek comics i've read in a long time and believe me i come at it as a critic i'm very hard on star trek comics if they're not the best i would never recommend them nice. they're, they're really good you guys should check it out anyway on to star trek beyond hello ladies and gentlemen just thought i would pop in with a post-election bit of information for everybody The um, Canadian election resulted with a Justin Trudeau Liberal Party minority, where his party won 157 seats, which is not enough for a majority. The Conservatives now have 121 seats. They went up a whole 26 uh, seats in total. The Bloc Québécois, which is the Quebec National Party, has gone up a considerable 22 seats from 10 to 32, whereas Jagmeet Singh's New Democratic Party, which were the sort of social democratic party, the very kind of Bernie Sanders group, they've gone down from uh, 39 to 24. 
The Green Party, which is the fiscally conservative but environmentally responsible party, has gone up to three from two seats. And Maxime Bernier's right-wing populist party, the People's Party of Canada, lost its only seat, which was the party leader's seat. Outside of that, we have a lot of posturing taking place between all of the different parties and how they have sort of oriented themselves to the new normals that we're going to be seeing. But this has kicked off a large separatist campaign in the province of Alberta, which is a little saddening, annoying, depressing, and quite frankly, stupid. So with that update, uh, if anyone has any interesting comments, please feel free to share it on our Twitter at Politrex. Now on with the main topic. Welcome back, everyone. We are continuing the Polytrex off series with the third, and I'm going to say it, controversial opinion, I know, most probably the final film in the Kelvin trilogy. Unless something really drastic happens, there is little to no chance we'll ever see these guys back together, which is sad, but we should just rejoice that we got these three movies. We have said many times on Polytrex that this is the series that pulled us back into Star Trek, both of us. So we are very grateful for that. And we're grateful that we, we get to talk about the third movie and what I think is the final movie, like I said. And I think the writing was on the wall, especially around the time this movie was coming out. And if people didn't know by then, it's just one of those things that we kind of know, but we don't talk about. There are There are some fundamental things that they did on the series as a whole that I think led to the financial, not complete flop out, but disappointment of Star Trek Beyond. And one of them was this, and Barry has a big one that he will talk about. And then I, I we will discuss that more. But one of the fundamental problems of the series was that they basically used the same plot structure over and over and over. If I say, hey, have you seen a Star Trek movie? in which a guy comes out of nowhere, and it is a guy, comes out of nowhere with little to no resources, except with nothing but uh, a motive to extract vengeance on one or all of the Federation, and they try to destroy it, and something happens to the ship in, in this movie. I could be describing Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, or Star Trek Beyond. And the sad thing is, there was no evolution from that plot structure. There was no attempt made. And if you remember some of the problems that happened while Star Trek Beyond was being made, whatever happened to the events that led to J.J. Abrams walk, not doing this movie, and then Simon Pegg coming in to write it. There, there were a lot of things that happened in the background, but I think the biggest failing is that all the three movies have a similar structure. And unfortunately, Beyond, Beyond was the last straw for audiences. And it, it was sad that it came out during the 50th anniversary of the franchise. I don't know if we deserve better is is, a wrong, is the right thing to say, because it's a good movie. There are a lot of things about it that work. But I do think the series itself deserved a better story than a retread of the first two movies, especially when it's such a big budget movie. And at, at the time, it was the only Star Trek thing that was happening. There's a lot that happened and we'll get into it. But those are just the general things that I, I wanted to talk about, just get them off my chest so we could continue on to talk about all the good things about this movie. 
You still with me, Barry, or did I lose you with my diatribe? No, you, you've engaged me even more, actually. And and I do think you're right in a lot of cases that I think a lot of us knew that a fourth J.J. Trek movie was probably not very probable, even before this one was released. And and that is that is a good point. I think that in a lot of cases, we seem to think that Star Trek has to be the Wrath of Khan every single time, or it has to be a let, your, let that be your last battlefield, or a pale moonlight. But I mean... If you look at the 24-episode-ish seasons of Star Trek throughout all of the different series in the franchise, you're going to see some kind of like finding a radio station, I guess, you know, where they're trying to sort of triangulate exactly where this series needs to find itself. I mean, I really think that that has been the exercise that Discovery has been doing, is it has spent the first two seasons trying to figure out where it sits within the larger pantheon of Star Trek series. And I think Deep Space Nine did that. I think TNG did that. Even even the original series didn't catch its stride off the bat. It had to reimagine itself to a degree to become what it ultimately would be. So, you know, actually, J.J. Abrams' movies were the spring of the new golden age of Star Trek shows, because it was in a deep, deep, dark winter sleep before 2009 Trek came out. It was kind of like a sci-fi movie with a Star Trek skin, right? It was like a Fortnite character to some people. I mean, It was the Star Wars of the Star Trek movies. Right. And and that's okay, because Star Trek is more than the sum of its parts in a lot of cases, and it can go in different directions. It's It's got a malleable framework to it that can move and change with society and with time. So I think that Star Trek Beyond, though, we do have that sort of ennui of knowing that there's we're probably never going to see anything by these people or through this lens ever again. At the same time, I think that it had its due, it had its time, and it represents a transitional period that Star Trek has gone through to get to where it is now. I don't think it's learned all its lessons from the the JJ versus little contradictions and issues, but I don't think Star Trek has learned its lesson about villains since, I don't know, Star Trek V? Unfortunately, the villains actually excel in the TV shows a lot more than they do in the movies. Yes, absolutely. Even if you think about Star Trek 2009, which is arguably the best movie that has come out since, I mean, the people have opinions, some would say First Contact, uh, since uh, Star Trek V, it still has a villain problem. That is, we are so lucky that there are so many good things in spades that we could ignore the villain problem in that movie. Anyway, speaking of, let's get to Star Trek Beyond, though. Give me your initial, where were you when you saw the movie? Do you remember that? How did you see the movie? And what was your initial reaction to it? How did you feel? Were there things that stood out to you right at the bar? go for it. We were just starting to podcast at this point, I think. We were just starting to get that kind of in our heads when Beyond had been out, I think, for what, like six to eight months or something? So it wasn't wasn't in theaters anymore. I don't actually recall going to the theater and watching it, but I'm pretty sure I must have went with friends. It was enjoyable. I did like it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was much more... I liked it because it was a little more crew-focused rather than individual character-focused. Like, we could argue that 2009 was about Kirk and Into Darkness was about Spock. And sure, you know, that that, that kind of works in and of itself, but I think that we got a much more rounded crew, which is where I think Discovery is going to go next, right? The first season was very much about Burnham. The second season was very much sort of another look at at Burnham uh, with sort of 
Spock characteristics, and now we've you know I hope we're moving into more character development without the um, without the oppressive um, weight of canon always you know yoking our our shows. And I do think that um, that Beyond did a good job of nodding to canon, right? I always think of the Wrath of Khan scene with Kirk saying that he's too old and there's Bones and they're talking about that and they're having a drink. And of course, in this this one, there's the scene between Bones and Kirk and they're talking about Kirk trying to identify who he is relative to his deceased father. So there's some there's a lot of connective tissue here and there. It was such a throwaway little piece at the end, but it was important when Idris Elba's character, Crawl, was saying that, you know, we've done all these things, right? We've lost millions. We've, I fought for humanity. We, you know, we fought against the Zindi and the Romulans and for what, right? All this sort of stuff. Him mentioning the Zindi is such an amazing connector to the Prime Universe. And I, I really feel like that was Simon Pegg as a writer uh, or whoever his team was really trying to get in something that we would understand and we would know. And by we, of course, I mean the Star Trek fans who do make this quite a serious uh, hobby of ours. So yeah, overall, it was a good movie. It was fun. Um, it was a good episode, right? Much like Star Trek Insurrection, it was a really good cinematic episode. Yeah, that's the biggest compliment and the biggest limitation sort of to this particular movie is that Star Trek Beyond is a great Star Trek TOS episode. Unfortunately, it's not the voyage home. If you think about the movies, Wrath of Khan has a structure that's completely different from the voyage home or our voyage home. And then to, if you think about it in a way, the undiscovered country has a different structure than these two movies. And First Contact has a completely different structure from all of the movies. So when I saw this movie, I I believe I saw it in theaters. I saw it a couple of times. I was very excited the first time. Second time, I just went in there to catch all the Easter eggs and references and stuff. At the beginning of the movie, in his captain's log, Girk says, at one point, things are starting to feel a little episodic. When I walked out of the movie the second time, I, I realized, what a coincidence. That's exactly how I feel about <laughs> Star Trek Beyond. Not, the, not to take a hit at the movie. I think the, they did the best they could with what they had, but that does not forgive them from kind of putting the final nail in the coffin of at least this particular direction of the franchise. I remember very well going into the movie that it was marketed like an action movie. Every trailer, every interview, every 30-second clip I saw was the one in which Kirk and Jayla are on the bike jumping into Kral's prison place. And they're both holding their hands as they get transported. And then there's the, oh, let's never do that again scene. There is action in this movie, but at least to me, it's not an action movie. It's it's a no. yeah it's a movie that has elements of action, but it's actually a movie about identity for both the antagonist and the protagonist and the crew and them finding themselves outside of the ship. There was a really poignant interview in which Simon Pegg said our goal at the, in the movie was to take them away from the Enterprise and see if they still functioned as a crew. And you find out when you watch the movie that they do. Unfortunately, I think that did not come through in the marketing. To a lot of people, it was just like, oh, it's another movie in which the ship gets destroyed. Who wants to watch that? And I'm sure that's why a lot of people 
the sad art of the movie. You've touched on so many really good points, and I'm going to try to break them apart. And I'm actually going to use a specific context and uh, I basically agree with you, but just sort of kind of my perspective on, on what you've said about how this movie is, isn't sure completely what it's supposed to be, I think. And you're right, because in terms of its writing, in terms of the interplay between characters, in terms of how they're supposed to interact, and as uh, as our friends at Mission Log would say, you know, the message is morals and meanings, as they as they would very aptly recount. What are those? But at the same time, you've got the director of Fast and Furious running it, right? And he is going to do his best JJ action-packed adventure film treatment onto this story. And I think that in that respect, what we get is a movie trying to be two very different things. You can have slow-moving very cerebral and you know thought-provoking science fiction and you can have explosive and crazy you know whatever science fiction where there's you know just bing bang shoot 'em up kind of stuff going on and then you can have these shows that try to balance the two of them and those exist right it's easier to to do one or the other but you know i would say that the the empire strikes back for instance in star wars is probably one of the best mixes between super action and some cerebral kind of, you know, more philosophical takes on things. And Star Trek has managed that in the past, usually with its episodes and usually with seasoned characters. I think that Beyond got a little too self-referential in some cases with those kind of like transporting while falling and riding motorbikes and the Beastie Boys just for whatever reason needing to be in Star Trek now for some reason, which is fine. But I think maybe the best way to take this is Sulu and George Takei's response to Sulu's coming out as gay. The scene where Sulu sees his husband and their daughter there isn't enough to it, and and actually George Takei quotes Shakespeare by saying that there's a lot of sound of fear, sound and fury, but it's it gives off more light than heat, and ultimately it it's it's kind of means nothing. And I do think that these sort of J.K. Rowling like retconning of characters' sexualities isn't necessary. And I think Takei was correct in saying that if we were to have a character who was gay, then make a gay character, make one, just have them be who they are. You don't have to shoehorn in these details that really aren't covered, that really don't make anything up. Like if Sulu's going to be gay, then he needs to exude that in a positive and healthy way. Yes, of course, he's a member of a crew and sexuality shouldn't define us and stuff like that. But I sort of side with Takei in the sense of like, okay, great, you've made him gay, what of it? Let's 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 explore that character. Let's see what being gay is like in the 23rd century. Let's see what what that's going to do to the implications and interactions of characters because as we've said on this show and on many other sh- uh, shows on the network, you know, Star Trek is a mirror and and we can't just look at something and not explore it if it's going to be put in front of us, especially in a movie. Nothing is supposed to happen by accident in a movie, right? In movies, things there should be a certain level of um of efficiency to the way the story is being told. And I just felt like this was like, uh, oh, by the way, this is this is a thing now. And then they just moved away from it and didn't didn't look into it, didn't celebrate it, didn't didn't explore what it was supposed to do. And I mean, this is coming from a white, heterosexual, cisgendered male, you know, from from the West. So I really don't have a lot to say here other than from what other people who are actually part of the LGBTQ community have said, either to me or on on the record, is that you're right, Shashank, they, they, they try to do a lot of formulaic things. They try to go deep into a lot of different things. They destroy the ship. They do all these things that unfortunately kind of fall flat 
when they really could have just leaned on the story and would have had a great movie nonetheless. I find it very interesting that in a movie in which they introduced a character as strong as Jayla, that they found it to be a higher priority to show sort of a flirtationship between her and Scotty than to have a character's homosexuality shoehorned in at the end of the episode, uh, at the end of the movie or episode. At this point, I think they they all just jumble in together for us because we watch them so often. Um, I feel bad for saying it, but I think it's almost a bit worse that they did what they did at the end and then have people figure out that that was his husband. I'm not going to lie. Next year, when I get to STLV and I see Barry at the airport, we are going to hug for three minutes. Yep. Does that, that doesn't make us, you know, homosexual. And I think in the movie, it makes financial sense that they wouldn't hinge a $150 million movie that they have to show in places like China and Japan and Thailand that they would hinge it on a scene like that at the end. But then why do it at all? Just leave it out. We're trying to just bring people to watch a Star Trek movie. It was just the the trying of it and the attempt that they took at it just was, it almost made it a bit worse. Maybe that's just me. I, I don't know. Yeah. And we could be wrong here, right? Again, the two of us come from a somewhat unqualified perspective. So if anyone who is a member of the LGBT community who thinks that, you know, something is better than nothing, I would concede that point 100%. And the more it's exposed in a positive light, and that's the thing is, is there is Sulu and his husband and, and, and his family, his daughter, altogether, that is a positive thing. It wasn't like, oh, look at that kind of thing. It was very much like, this is a normal thing that normal people do that is important. I guess, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's just, if if they had built up Sulu's character in that direction from 2009 to Into Darkness, even if it was just like a small little story that was just picked up on, just a little bit, here and there, and then comes to full fruition in Star Trek Beyond, I think we would have had a much more convincing scene there, one that would have had a lot more emotional bearing to it, right? It Unfortunately, it has the same kind of shoehorned in thing as in Into Darkness when Kirk gets a, a sneak peek at um, Carol Marcus. The actress was Alice Eve, yeah, Carol Marcus. Yeah, yeah, at Car- Carol Marcus when there's nothing, like, was, where, is that supposed to be a romance? Like, the real Carol Marcus, Captain Kirk story doesn't really have much meat to it either like it, it it's sort of there but i don't know there was nothing was built up there was nothing to it and nothing was followed up on and so i do think that the biggest thing that that the jj movies have as their as their you know a detractor might have is just the amount of loose ends they leave behind and i think it does have to do with that need for a better balance between action and storytelling and that's where it kind of falls flat so I, I do think, though, we, we have some positives we want to talk about. We're not going to just drag Star Trek Beyond through the mud the entire time. So let, you mentioned Jayla. I wouldn't mind talking about her really quick. So, again, some people think that she's kind of a Mary Sue. Some people think that she's a, a character who could have had more should there have been a fourth movie. I don't think we should rule out a Jayla in some iteration coming coming up in future movies. But she does sort of have a new capacity, right? She she builds on a new dimension of Star Trek well-wishing, positive, possible crew member. But she's also sort of this innocent warrior, right? She was born into this sort of world. She has a very innocent, wide-eyed look at the world. And I think that's a fascinating way to portray her. What were your initial thoughts of Jayla? If I had a nickel for every time someone said, 
Ray was a Mary Sue, Ray from Star Wars, or Jayla was a Mary Sue, or Shuri from Black Panther was a Mary Sue, I would take that nickel and throw it right back into their face. <laughs> Stop calling strong female characters who are good at what they do Mary Sue's. Right. The only person who is making a fool of themselves in that argument is you. Nobody, nobody ever, I don't remember anybody in nine, 966 when Kirk was just straight up going down to planets and punching people and then walking out. Nobody ever said, oh, maybe that guy's a little too strong for a human male. Just stop. We see it. We see your sexism. We see your narrow-mindedness. And we would like you to stop so we can all have a good time here. But speaking of Jayla, I think Jayla is awesome as a character. Very cool. I like that she was mechanical. I think the more representation there is of women doing mechanical things in TV shows and movies, the more women are encouraged to get into the STEM fields. Uh, that's why I think uh, Tilly is such a cool character in Discovery because she that's the power of math, people, is one of the coolest lines in the last few years of Star Trek and uh, just show more women fixing things and building things because they're, they can do that too. They are just as good or if not better at all the things that men can do. Please stop with the Mary Sooness. Nobody wants to listen to that. Coming back to Jayla, I think uh, Sophia Botella, I believe is the name of the yeah. actress. I think she did a good job. She, she definitely integrated with the crew very well. She was able to stand toe-to-toe with Scotty when she she first meets him she al- almost makes fun of scotty she almost is amused by him with his accent and his uh, the way he says things she, i like the noise and the beating when she's playing the music that's a pretty cool line i i do think uh, her action is shown very well and i think that was a really good thing about this movie before this movie came out at least in the kelvin trilogy you really don't see women doing a lot of action this movie she's front and center with her staff just beating people up and invading places and breaking into places and stealing things. And that was that was really cool. I like Jayla. I like the portrayal. Had there been a fourth movie, I would have really liked to see her on the ship as part of the crew. I think she would have done really well as part of the engineering team because that's clearly where her talents lie. But I don't know. Maybe she's good for security too because she's clearly so good at kicking ass. She is a kick-ass character and is a lot of fun and was a good source of comic relief. She played really well with with that sort of Scotty Jayla sort of dynamic between the two of them. It was it was fun and it was interesting. I do think that they imagine the character in a way that I think is unique. I would say that my favorite female lead right now in modern contemporary cinema would probably be Charlize Theron's Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road. I think she is a really good example of the strength of of, of women, the utter and sheer ferocity that comes out of out of a strong female character. She had her femininity stripped by a Morton Joe, right? She was defeminized in a lot of cases, but her femininity still still exuded through its strength and power could not be diminished just by just with an image. And I think that Jayla taps into that a little bit. I don't know which movie came first off the top of my head, but between the two of them, I do see I do see direction for female leads that isn't just putting a masculine skin onto a female character to make her strong. And you're right. A lot of people mistake a character being a Mary Sue for a character who 
if they were male, they would have gotten away with all of it, right? The greatest Mary Sue of all, of course, I think is James Bond. Uh, <laughs> that guy can't do anything wrong. And it's funny. I, I mean, I, I guess until um, until the, the more recent Bond movies came out, and we do actually see a Bond get the crap kicked out of him and stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. I think that that argument maybe needs to needs to take a rest because it, it doesn't really get us anywhere. I want to move on now to Crawl. First of all, when you Google Crawl quotes, you're going to learn a lot about Diana Crawl, the musician. <laughs> mad, mad, res, mad respect for Diana Crawl. But when you do get into Crawl himself, he's very fascinating. And I think he was a very good mirror. And some people have said that, you know, they, they covered Idris Elba with so much makeup that it was really hard to kind of see him act. Um, watch it again because I think he does a fantastic job behind so much makeup and it's a really good change. I mean, I've, I've seen Idris Elba in a lot of different roles. I really loved him in the, the series Luther. You know, he was cute and funny sort of in the office and stuff like that. So I think this was, I think you can tell he as a character is having quite a bit of fun with this. So with Krull, I find he's the angry legionnaire, right? He's angry that the Federation, as it exists now, has basically spit him out now that they no longer need him. And he makes some good callbacks to the Zindi War and the Romulan War and what he basically did to make this place what it is. And maybe he represents that darker side to larger conglomerations like the European Union or the United Nations, right? They are not without their atrocities. They are not without their dark sides. And I think we do a lot to our peril in ignoring those things, right? I think the, obviously the United States has a laundry list of atrocities, though it still considers itself the bastion of freedom. I mean, tell anyone in Honduras that America is the bastion of freedom, right? Tell anyone in in Southeast Asia, like in Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia, if America is a bastion of freedom, right? It, it, it has its contradictions, and sometimes it ignores those contradictions to its peril, and sometimes those contradictions rear their ugly head. We live in the age now of hyper militarized, very angry loners who are causing a lot of damage um, through mass shootings um, and, of course, this kind of divisive culture that is existing. And I think to some degree, Kral can can occupy that space quite a bit. He knows what the Federation is, and he thinks that it's a lie. I wish they could have pulled on that thread a little bit more. I wish they could have sacrificed a bit of the, you know, ship-destroying... Um, you know, they, they kind of make him seem more threatening than he actually is by the end, because what what do you know, all that all you need to do to calm the beast is music, right? The Beastie Boys song destroys the ships because they can't communicate, blah, blah, blah. I guess, like, what destroys this um, very, very important critique that this character is putting on the Federation? Oh, just, you know, pop culture music. Let's just sink back into the collective amnesia, am, amnesiac sleep that we have where we can just rely on our nostalgia to get us through these hard questions is maybe kind of how I took it from maybe more of a critical point of view. I don't think Crawl was destroyed properly. I think he was just sort of ended like any other Star Trek villain, um, basically being the architect of his own destruction. But I don't think they actually resolved the contradiction that Kral was bringing up and they actually I don't even know if they recognized that that was a thing you again <laughs> it, it's difficult for me to talk about these things especially when we want to try to be positive but I keep uh, despite myself I keep finding these these negative things that I want to just discuss let's talk about the swarm I believe that's what they're called the swarm yes. is the little fly drone droids that that are being sent out in the millions to destroy things it seems like they can do anything. 
they can destroy ships and nothing yeah they can do anything and nothing <laughs> they can they can destroy ships they can collectively fly people around they can break barriers that are built around a maze ball town they can they could do anything man and with that kind of weaponry this guy could just not figure out how to get out of that planet and he had the technology to build that swarm but he did not have the technology to get out and you know find a better life for his people just it's and it's just there is so many contradictions in that place but just the swarm itself yeah you're right the fact that they're just destroyed by music playing is one of the most disappointing endings to a plot thread since do you remember the movie signs oh do i remember the movie signs you find out <laughs> yes. that at the end of the movie they're destroyed by water spoiler alert <laughs> just why would aliens come to a planet that is majority water if they can it's uh this is there is a science podcast that needs to happen outside yeah, of yeah. this but the, the, yeah the swarm was i really think when the pitch for this movie was was done nobody cared to actually put the logic of what the swarm is they were like oh it just looks mm-hmm. cool and i'm watching the scene right now i'm i'm close to the third act where they're all coming in and the swarm falls upon itself while the music is played played and it starts destroying it so it looks very cool Mm-hmm. but again there is the logic once you start pulling at the thread much like the way the swarms destroy the enterprise i could destroy the plot logic like just straight yeah. drive through it and that was kind of disappointing but uh, talking about crawl i think crawl as a character is a really good idea the sad thing is they they led they did this in the third movie in which a person is disappointed by the ideals of the federation and has some personal reason to get back at the federation like the the yeah. fact that it's the it's a different shaped crepe but it's made from the same flower <laughs> And yeah. it's just it just does not work that way in spite of uh, spe- in spite of how cool the actor is and how great the performance is i will say this though the biggest theft in oscar history in my opinion is the fact that this makeup team did not win the oscar Yeah for for make up uh for some reason suicide squad one and i get it in that there is a character called killer croc and they made a guy look like a crocodile but this movie had some of the most incredible make up i mean it's hard to believe that crawl has no cgi on him that it's it's all make up and yeah. all of crawl's bad guys are, are just make up not cgi and this comes at the heel of the crab tentacle scalp lady who who was just crazy like the i believe there is also a background character who has a beautiful head thing that it's like almost like a coiled i forget what she's called but she's the makeup artist's uh, daughter or stepdaughter or something like that and they they did a panel in 2018 2018 or 2017 when they came out and talked about that makeup might have been 2017 <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. Just to kind of touch on a little a little thing that you were talking about in the sense of that the same treatment of villain happens where they have this bone to pick with the federation and then they get destroyed. I think that Spider-Man 2 is a really good example of the villain not needing that gigantic send-off, right? As as things are getting worse and worse and again spoiler alert for Spider-Man 2, that's the one with Tobey Maguire um uh, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans and he's fighting Doc Ock and Dr. Octopus 
you know, they're getting closer and closer to the, the bad thing happening. And Peter Parker is capable of reasoning with Dr. Octopus and ends up convincing him that he's wrong. And then to save the city, Dr. Octopus sacrifices himself ultimately because he now believes in the values that Peter Parker espoused to him. And I really feel like if, if we wanted a positive ending to this film rather than just an angry guy dying angrily, what if the philosophies and the morals of the Federation are better explained to him when he's very close to, you know, say he's using that super weapon and he's going to destroy the Yorktown and all this sort of stuff. And it is through a concerted effort from members on the crew and maybe people within Carl's own crew that finally convince him that he has been wrong this entire time. And in order to save the Federation that he once hated, he ends up, you know, sacrificing himself or injuring himself so badly that now he's he's getting taken back and will be will be healed from not only his his physical but his psychological wounds. I think obviously that's my how it should have ended, but yeah, it would have been better than him just like ang- like dying with a dirty look on his face. If there is ever a franchise in which things are made better by talking to each other, it's Star Trek. That they didn't think of that. I do believe if Picard was the captain of the Enterprise, he would have tried to talk him down. There is no attempt to talk him out in this movie. It's just, oh, you're bad, you're bad. We're going to get you. Captain Kirk is coming to get you. And he gets them and he kills them and the movie's over. There yeah, is much like much like 2009, right? I'd rather I'd rather die in agony than blah 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 from you, right? Is what Nero says to Kirk when he says like we are willing to give you aid if if you want. Right then and there, we could have we could have seen that that interplay happen, and maybe maybe that is something that was forgotten or at least wasn't thought of in a holistic sense by the people who put together this story. I wonder what Simon Pegg's original draft looked like, because I do see this movie was edited and produced for time. It's clear. And the fact that it's a $185 million movie and nobody once sat down and thought, hey, what if we do something Star Trek in the Star Trek movie? It's almost like the movie creators were working against Star Trek to to try and not make it Star Trek, but make it more action and, you know, full of, oh, uh, you know, we could do the thing where people talk to each other and reason themselves out. But come on, how cool is it when Kirk is holding a phaser out in his new biker jacket while he walks (laughs) through a dark room, right? Right? Come on. I mean, it's just... Uh, There were so many little things that eventually just led to, like, these things breaking down. But what I really enjoy... Uh, again, when it comes to Crawl, is that unless somebody specifically tells you Crawl is Idris Elba, there is no way you would know. No, absolutely and not. That's a that's props to the character, props to the makeup team, uh, props to the acting choices that were made. But it's just yeah, it's the Crawl is a good Crawl had the potential to be the best villain in this Kelvin trilogy. Just. Certain things just took him down, but the the makeup is one that I really am always, every time I watch the movie, no matter what problems I have with it, when I watch it, I'm definitely thinking, that makeup, man. Even Jayla, Jayla's makeup is 
incredible and it, it's so subtle but it works on so many levels the fact that you could see on her all the elements in which she was being uh, the fact that she was on that planet in the and a scavenger you could tell that she had the elements of those of that scavenger type person uh, on the very dress that she was the outfit that she was wearing she's very magpie-esque i find uh, if you're familiar with the the mid-sized corvid the magpie you know um says a lot of stuff very curious um very sort of vibrant black and white coloring yeah just i don't know she 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 does sort of remind me of uh of of that sort of there's an innocence to her. Um, you were just talking about about Crawl himself, though. We do finally notice it is Idris Elba when he's being portrayed as Balthazar M- Edison. But yeah, I mean, outside of that, uh, the other characters you were talking about as well, Ensign Seal and Kalara, are all just so well makeuped, and I do think we need to give mad props for that. One thing I was gonna just quickly kind of touch in on as well is this does feel like a TOS episode, as we'd mentioned before. TOS episodes were rife with their with their uh, you know sillinesses and stuff like that, and maybe we give them a bit of a better pass because it was the 1960s. But maybe to some degree that was what needed to happen, right? This episode didn't take itself quite as seriously as the other two. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that works in a way to the benefit of the movie. Uh, But speaking of that, just to go back to that one scene you were talking about where you do find out he's Idris Elba, I wish movies in general just got together as a community, everybody who made movies, and decided to retire the trope of people finding out who the bad guy is through a computer screen. I wish they would just retire that. Like, just stop doing the thing where I find out somebody's the bad guy through a monologue on a computer screen. That's like, there are so many better ways. You were were saying Star Wars. Just look at Star Wars. There's not one place in which Darth Vader sits down in front of a monologue-sized webcam screen and goes, I am bad because this happened to me when I was part of the Empire. And just doesn't, just stop doing, please, stop the trope of... taking a character down to the size of a computer screen and people sitting and going, oh, now that I know that, he's a bad guy. It's just, just uh, stop that. Anyway, uh, going back to <laughs> Crawl. Yeah, definitely Crawl. I uh, I think it was an idea that started out great and then due to the things that happened, just ended up being good, which is, again, be- much better than bad. I'm just saying words right now, I get it, but it's it's it could have been something. It could have been a Khan-esque character had they... F- really taken the risks that the character deserved, I think. There is a good character comparison philosophically between Kirk and Crawl, right? Kirk says, my dad joined Starfleet because he believed in it. I joined it on a dare. I think that this in and of itself is what Crawl's point is. Crawl joined Starfleet because he believed in it, because he wanted to protect Earth, because he felt that that what we had was something better than any others. And that kind of comes off as xenophobic, right? His reasons are very some you know, a lot more traditional, authoritarian style belief in in an organization. And I think there, you know, you could probably speak to a lot of people who are in the high commands of several different military establishments and would, would basically side with crawl, I think, in a lot of cases. I think that when you see that sort of vapidity to Kirk and him diminishing his reasons for joining Starfleet, he said that I joined on a dare. And technically he did. Obviously, he's not recognizing the deeper meanings and the deeper issues, right? Bones then responds by saying, you joined to see if you could live up to your father, right? You spent all this time trying to be your father. Now you're wondering what it means just to be you. And of course, Crawl is a, is a flip of that, right? He knew who he was when he was Starfleet. He knew 
knew what he was to do. And now that he's been spit out, he is this complete and total, just alienated, separated, angry, disassociated and disenfranchised person. And I think that's one of the greatest pieces of the story that Star Trek is trying to do here. Because in that period, when Beyond comes out, I think we start seeing the rise of the angry and the disenfranchised. And now they are causing elections to be won and lost in some cases. And it's their anger that is driving them. It is their feeling that things were better before. All of these kind of you know proto-fascistic styles of thinking that, again, we can hold a mirror to. We can see that in this time. What do we do with the crawls of this world? Do we just put them into that weird weapon vacuum-y thing and just watch them die with a dirty look on their face? Or do we try to espouse the values we claim to believe in and try to win them over that way? Like, when does force become necessary? And when does force um, show too much of our our hand and our desire to want to destroy things that are against us, right? There are always going to be those who are in opposition to even the greatest, quote-unquote, or at least in uh, whoever's opinion, the greatest social and um, economic dimensions that, that could exist, right? The Federation is a world without want in a lot of cases. And yet here is the unsatisfied, the disassociated, the left out, the cast off, right? There's almost a Luciferian connection to Crawl. Crawl is, he stands apart from the Federation, not because the values, not because of the values of the Federation, but in spite of those values. And so that highlights this tension between Starfleet and the Federation that may even still exist and could have been a thread they could have pulled. Um, not even Discovery can talk, talk about that tension anymore because they're beyond the Federation, it sounds like. So yeah, I think that's that's all I've got for Crawl. Uh, one thing I'll say about Crawl before we get out is uh, the little things that he says, not so little really, the things that he says when he ends up in the Starfleet uniform again at the end of the movie, and he's like pulling at his shirt while he's saying it, you could just see how angry he is at the at the Federation. I just think they were so powerful, and they deserved a better place than just before both Kirk and Crawl become Superman and start jumping around. Almost like it's the <laughs> Inception stairwell scene, like in the yeah. hotel scene where they're flying around. Uh, again, I just the great, great moment. I, I really enjoy that. I wish it had been in a better place than during a third, uh, an action movie third act scene. So yeah, I think as an action movie, Star Trek Beyond is a little bit on the meh side. And on the side of what it does and how it treats its characters, I really think like, I mean, we haven't even talked about Bones and Spock very much. We haven't talked about Uhura and how she sort of plays off of Crawl quite a bit. There are a lot of really good pairings in this movie, and it is enjoyable, and it is fun to watch, and it isn't without its contradictions and, and issues. But I think that's the best part about Star Trek is we as fans can kind of look at the series a little more scientifically. Some people take it too seriously and start sort of proscribing what they think every series should be and how it should be. And I guess to some degree, you and I have done that on this episode. But at the same time, I think we can muse about these things and talk about it critically and constructively, but still enjoy the movie. So again, if anyone thinks we're poo-pooing on Star Trek Beyond, I don't know, we've had some time to think about it. And these are the thoughts we have. So I wouldn't necessarily say that either you or I, Shashank, and I am sort of speaking on your behalf here, but I don't think either of us really had a problem with the movie overall. But when we start pulling the the philosophical, sociopolitical threads of this movie, we do see some loose ends. But that doesn't mean it's not a fun movie. 
Yeah, I would I would definitely recommend watching it. I I do watch it occasionally and rewatch it just because there are little things that I enjoy. I make fun of the biker jacket, but I like the biker jacket. For instance, just little things that I enjoy. Yeah, I'd wear it. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, definitely the Spock McCoy dynamic is the strongest in this movie, the most remnant of the TOS. And I guess one of the reasons why it looks like a TOS episode and uh, feels like a TOS episode is the their dynamic, especially when they're down there and Spock is injured and he cusses. Just, just yeah, a lot of fun elements. These were just issues that we... That was not the intention when we started the 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 recording. At least not this this time around. We were not thinking, oh, we are just going to break this movie down. It's just when it's we are in the place we are in discussing the movie we are, which is probably going to be the final Kelvin trilogy movie. It kind of has to deal with the fact that it's the third in a series and it continues. The things that worked great the first time didn't work quite so well for a lot of people the second time, and they stubbornly stuck with it instead of taking the risks and doing no things so that's yeah. that's kind of where we are we we still enjoy the movie it's fun and we definitely recommend it watch it just these are things that we wanted to talk about so i think with that looking at uh looking at the kelvin universe sort of as an encapsulated maze ball as you said space station uh, folks if you've ever seen what's called a m-a-z-e-b-a-l-l maze ball um, just look it up on uh, on Google Images and then look up the Yorktown and you can totally see where the inspiration came from. And I think it's a fabulous sort of design and everything. But anyways, back to the, the, the Kelvin Universe movies themselves, I think to return to the idea that these movies represented a, a liminal transitional stage for the Star Trek franchise, it was a gasp for air. Uh, for something that had been sleeping like like a cicada the star trek series franchise itself burrowed into the 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 very soil of our sort of collective unconsciousness and at the appropriate time it found its way back right it took an appropriate break it found its legs and now we see what has been uh, what has come from it and the fact that we have more trek to talk about and we've talked about this so many times before on this show and on many others so it's not like we're treading new ground here but i think we owe it to the kelvin universe even if we don't like all of the movies and all of their elements we owe it to the kelvin universe for putting star trek back into the modern conversation this was a fun episode to talk to you man i always enjoy talking to you anyway but it was fun to talk about uh just look at these things that we both had issues with and then in just in general get out our overall feelings on star trek beyond and hopefully if people react well to the polytrekkle commentaries we'll actually do live commentaries and you can have us on in the background and mute the episode uh, or movie and watch it along with us and share our feelings and yell out at us what you thought of this episode and what will we do in the future, what we've been doing in the past. You can definitely get in touch with us on at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. If you have enjoyed this episode and you've enjoyed our previous episodes, as always, we would love if you could leave us a rating and review or wherever you're listening to us, but specifically also on iTunes because that helps more people find us so we can talk to more Star Trek people and I can feel less lonely in my everyday life absolutely and if you do want to support the uh, the trek geeks network any further and ensure that uh, super quality trek made your way is going to be a thing into the future feel free to hop on the trek geeks patreon and sign on for as little as a dollar a month we always appreciate the support and it ensures that uh, we can keep everything running at full capacity so with that i will say live long and prosper and here's to absent friends 
Qualitrex is a production of Coconut Media Works, executive producers Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out their other members of the Trek Geeks podcast network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and trekgeeks.com.